Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One beautiful September day, three men convene on Martha's Vineyard, friends ever since meeting in college circa the 60s. They couldn't have been more different then or even today. Lincoln is a commercial real estate broker, Teddy a tiny press publisher, Mickey a musician beyond his rock and age. Each man holds his own secrets, in addition to the monumental mystery that none of them has ever stopped puzzling over since a Memorial Day weekend right here on the Vineyard, 1971, the disappearance of the woman each of them loved, J.C. Rockefeller. Now, more than 40 years later, as this new weekend unfolds, three lives are displayed in their entirety, while the distant past confounds the present like a relentless squall of surprise and discovery. It's the uh, plot in brief of the new novel from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo. The new book is Chances Are. Richard Russo is author of eight novels, including Everybody's Fool and That Old Cape Magic, two collections of stories, the memoir Elsewhere. In 2002, he received the Pulitzer Prize for Empire Falls, which, like Nobody's Fool, was adapted to film in a multiple award-winning HBO miniseries. Richard Russo, welcome to the program. Well, it's great to be here, Tom. So this one, um, it's uh, friendships. That's an ongoing theme, uh, class uh, divisions. Uh, this particular book uh, is a mystery as well. That's, that's somewhat new. Uh, did you know going in you wanted to write a mystery? Um, no. Um, as a matter of fact, if I, had, if, I, if I had known I was going to be writing a thriller, <laughs> I, might have, I might have thought twice um, about it, because it, it, you know, the book is a little bit um, outside my, my normal wheelhouse. Um, although what I, what, I did kind of, what I did kind of know uh, was that this book would, have, would be a little bit more tightly structured. Um, a lot of my books are fairly freewheeling. I, I, I let my characters tell me what the book is about. Um, and there are generally kind enough to do that. Um, in this book, though, um, this is a book about secrets and um, and lies. And if you're if you if that, which means you're going to which means you're going to have have a, a bit more plot um, than normal. And so, as I as I began to discover um, exactly what these characters, um, what what their secret lives were all about, um, it, became, it became necessary to figure out how uh, information was going to be dispensed by the reader, because if you tell everybody up front um, what, what the secrets are, that doesn't work very well. So very soon I found myself plotting uh, in a way that would reveal um, certain things, uh, would reveal information, dole it out in, in, small, uh, in small doses. That's what I love. What I love most about thrillers, although although I do usually don't write those, both movies, if we're talking about movies or 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 uh, television or in book form, um, I really kind of like the slow burn, if you know what I mean. You know, where mm-hmm. where in, instead of instead of um, beginning the book um, on a on a roller coaster ride, um, you begin with. Um, the doling out of information and certain things don't quite add up and the reader begins to get a little bit nervous and then other things don't kind of add up and they get more nervous. 
and suddenly, and 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 suddenly, um, you know, everything everything about the book you think you think certain things are at stake, and then you realize that 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 um, that actually there's more at stake than you imagined until until finally you find yourself in kind of a in kind of a gripping and and relentless situation. That's what that's what I like about good thrillers and movies and TV, and that's what I. Also, what I like about them in um, in fiction. So you're writing about uh, three friends here, really four, because JC, uh, you know, it's, it is yeah. uh, appears through the, the the memories, the feelings that all three have for her. Um, so these are friends; these are old friends. Um, I don't know the stakes higher there with old friends. Well, I think so, um, especially when their friendships are defined. Um, the way they are in in this book, these are these are. I mean, there's a lot about chance in this book, and chance is the tense. The title, chances are, um, but there are a lot of moving parts um, to this particular friendship. Um, and, and you know, you you mentioned class before, and all my works have a component of of class uh, in them. And in this case, um, part of the basis for this for this friendship. Uh, is class oriented in that that um, they they all um, they all go to this same uh, shishi um, uh, very expensive uh, liberal arts college on the coast of Connecticut and of course what all three of these young men at the time what all three of them have in common is that in terms of class none of the three really belong there um, none of them have anything like a safety net. Uh, they don't come from wealth, and they're being introduced to to a world um, that is entirely uh, entirely new to them. And so they become uh, they become friends. They think of themselves as the three musketeers, um, all for one and one for all. Um, and and that's partly uh, as a result of of the of the fact that um, all the other or most of the other students are, who are in that college have parents who can afford the staggering tuition. Um, and who come from money, and who have certain expectations about what money can and cannot buy, um, none of which Lincoln and and uh, and Teddy and Mickey have any experience of. So there are those so there are those class issues that that bind them together uh, when they are when they are young men, and since you know all three have had um, really interesting lives. Those lives have not ended in riches, and so when they when they come together again um, at, uh, at at sixty six, they find that some of those bonds have been tested, but they're but they're still powerful and strong um, in in kind of the way that they are. I mean, I grew up uh, in, in in the same situation as all of these young men. Um, I didn't have any certainly didn't have any family safety net. Um, and um, as a result of the various blessings that I've had as a as a published author and a and a prize winner, my life has has gotten um, easier now than it certainly was when I was when I was growing up. But um, if you've spent um, a considerable portion of your life without money. You never kind of lose that orientation. If, you, if that make any sense, mm-hmm. that even if you, even even when your life has gotten easier and you have a little bit more money in the bank, 
um, and life life has taught you that that it, that in addition to going badly at times, it can also go very well, and you can be very fortunate, and you can be very blessed. Um, those um, those early experiences of 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 not having um, uh, not coming from wealth, uh, not being able to um, to depend upon other people if you make bad decisions, that that sense of the world never entirely goes away, or at least it, certain ha- it certainly hasn't for me. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, it's a thumbnail sketch of each of these three. Maybe we'll start with Lincoln, Lincoln Moser. He's the person who owns that house that they're uh, gathering uh, at. He, he's the person who organized this get-together. Yeah, Lincoln. Lincoln comes from a part of all three of these characters. Actually, come from a part of a part of my own um, personality. Things that I've thought about, uh, uh, choices that I've made at various times in my life. Lincoln is of the of the three friends. He is the most conservative, and when I say conservative, I mean both both politically and kind of emotionally. Um, uh, politically, he is he is the uh, the lifelong Republican uh, of the party. Of, of the of the uh, uh, of the three, um, he lives out west. Uh, he is the son of uh, a man who was part owner in a mostly played out copper mine in in Arizona. But his mother, who is a very very quiet, circumspect, obedient woman in her marriage, has inherited um, this this cottage on Martha's Vineyard. And it's the one thing that she has. She refuses to turn over to her husband. Uh, she bequeaths this this property, which has increased in value over the years, um, uh, almost exponentially, as the as as the as the island has become more famous and and shishi. Uh, and Lincoln um, uh, and Lincoln has inherited this uh, this property. And the book kind of begins with him arriving there, unfortunately, as a result of the economic downturn, the great recession, uh, going there thinking that he's going to have to sell this property. So that's, that's Lincoln. Um, Teddy is, Teddy is the son of, of high school English teachers. Um, and (laughs) as he, uh, as he puts it, their lives were full of kids before he ever came along. And, (laughs) and, um, they can barely find time for him uh, when uh, you know um, amongst their classes and their students and their paper grading and and Teddy Teddy grows up um, um, you know you know he he's kind of one kid too many <laughs> uh, and so and so he is and 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 like Teddy even as he as 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 I was at his age I was profoundly interested very early. Uh, in girls before I before I had you know the, the necessary courage to even talk to them, uh, much less much less ask for a date. Um, that was me, and 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 that's that's Teddy in his in his inner life. He's he's very interested, but also like me, he has at at that age. I had a I suppose a, a religious or spiritual side. I was an altar boy, uh, right up straight straight up through high school. And so even as I was flirting with the idea of, of being a ladies' man, I was also flirting with the idea of, of, of being, uh, um, you know, if not a, if not a priest, having, having some sort of large spiritual component in my life. Uh, and that's, that's kind of Teddy's origins. Um, 
Mickey uh, is, in some ways, the simplest, kind of psychologically, of of these three characters, um, because he really has only one desire in life, uh, and that is to play rock and roll. Um, uh, I just turned 70, um, um, but even at that age, if the right song comes on the radio, I have but one desire, and that's to strap on an electric guitar, plug it into an amp, uh, and play uh, and play rock and roll music. And I, I did that as a young man, uh, played in a band, and when I was in college, um, I put myself in part through graduate school um, playing and uh, uh, playing 12-string guitar in, in bars. So Mickey, Mickey draws on that other aspect of uh, of my younger life. Mickey is in some ways the least changed, right? He's still rocking out at, at, at that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and music, of course, plays a very, very large part um, in this book. Um, and it's it's largely it's largely through through Mickey, whose sense of identity, uh, much more than Lincoln's or Teddy's, is is really located in in music. And so, a song like "Chances Are," which which gives the title to this book, the Johnny Mathis uh, song, um, is of course much made fun of and much derided, as is Teddy's and and uh, and and Lincoln's musical taste. But in the in the song, chances are there's there's one magical night when these three friends are together back in 1971 when um, even Mickey has to appreciate the schmaltzy lyrics of chances are, because what all three of these young men and the girl that they are all three profoundly uh, over their heads in love with, they, they, despite the times, the Vietnam War is raging, Mickey has a very low um, draft number, and it looks like he will be heading off to Southeast Asia within probably months. Um, but there's this one night that all three of these young men and this beautiful wild child young woman um um come together uh and 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 in and in the dark night on this deck of this house in house in Martha's Vineyard sing the lyrics to chances are because all four of them want so desperately to believe that their chances are awfully awfully good as the song says mm. um and throughout um but so that song kind of haunts the novel um as does as does my beloved Grace Slick, <laughs> who's, who uh, who signals the theme of the novel um, uh, in her in her lyric from the famous Jefferson Airplane song, "Somebody to Love When the Truth Is Found to Be Lies and All the Joy Within You Dies." So, so Mickey, we get a lot of we get an awful lot of mileage out of uh, out of the music of the of the late '60s and early '70s in this book and. And Mickey, of course, gets to deride uh, so much of contemporary music, which was also fun. Yeah, he he uh, he thumbs through uh, Lincoln's playlist, right, and makes fun of all the songs. Uh, that's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he later, yeah, he makes he makes he makes fun of, um, uh, of 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 the various Pandora playlists that that Lincoln has on his phone. And later on, he Teddy's Teddy's um, uh, Teddy's. Uh, musical interests right now are much more are much more contemporary, um, and 
Lincoln offers to cure his Mumford and Sons disorder, as he calls it, <laughs> right. <laughs> at one point in the novel. That's right. So yeah, you get to play with the with the old stuff and, and the new stuff as well. <laughs> so uh, JC, they're all three in love with JC back in the day. Um, yeah. so she still has a big impact in their lives, even though after that original. Uh, week on uh, you know on Martha's Vineyard, she she disappeared, but she's still very much in a way part of this of this weekend. Uh, all those years later, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, JC. Yeah, it's forty. It's forty five years. It's forty five years later, or thereabouts, forty four years later, and this young woman still haunts them um, in a way that it's it's it probably would be much more difficult for her to do had she not disappeared <laughs> mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, it, her disappearance is is part of the reason that they continue to think about her uh, um so so hauntingly for for so for so very long and of course um you know these guys are now 66 years old um the age i was when i started writing this book um but these are now, um, um, you know, it's it's wrong really to call them middle-aged men anymore. These are these are on the these guys are on the cusp of old age, and they and they suffer from lower back pain, and they have to get up several times in the middle of the night to pee, and 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 all of that. But J.C. of course remains as young as she was when they saw her last, as young, as beautiful, as free, as vibrant, uh, as full of life. She hasn't aged, uh, and so they can still not only be still be kind of in love with her all this all this time later, but um, but but she remains perfect um, by virtue of her disappearance. And so, I mean, and it's also complicated by the fact that, of course, back in the day when they were all so thrillingly in love with her. They were not only in love with her, but they were in love with two other things, the first of which being the spirit of the times. This was, this was not just a beautiful girl. This was a beautiful free girl uh, uh, who was this kind of the spirit of the early 70s, the Woodstock generation. She's, uh, I don't describe her um, an awful lot physically beyond the fact that she has curly dark hair and olive skin, uh, but you know, like so many girls at the time, she goes around braless and and uh, and she's kind of free spirited uh, and 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 is kind of an emblem of what freedom meant to to young people twenty um, somethings back in 1971. So so um, so she hasn't aged. She's still. She's still an emblem of freedom, even at even at a time when all three of these uh, young men, now old men, have learned something uh, about freedom and how difficult it is to hold on to as you age. Um, and she also, um, the second thing that's important about about JC is that not only have they fallen in love with her and what she represents in terms of freedom, but um, but also she's from Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, she's the girl who belongs at this college, whose parents can afford the staggering tuition, whereas these young men are all scholarship kids who have to sling hash in a sorority house to make things to make ends meet. J.C. Um, comes from wealth. She comes from privilege. And these young guys are getting their first glimpse at a world that they know nothing about. So they fall in love with her. But they also fall in love with privilege, 
with wealth of 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 an easier less uh less stressful life where where doors um seem magically uh to open and uh so they're so they're in they're in love with her but they're in love with Greenwich Connecticut and they're in love with this Minerva college that I invented um and all the and all the freedom and and uh and and privilege that those things embody you just joined us. We are talking with the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, novelist Richard Russo. Uh, the new book is Chances Are, um, and it's a, a novel uh, set back in the 70s and um, closer to today, as uh, three, uh, three young men then, now older, uh, gather for uh, another weekend at Martha's Vineyard. Let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Richard Russo. Hi, I'm Audie Cornish, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. We hosts have to be skilled in the art of interjecting. When you think about it, the job of a host is to be a professional listener. We ask questions, of course, but then we actively listen, and sometimes we hear something that requires more context and clarity. That's when we interject, whether pointing out a contradiction or adding context. Is that challenging China's sovereignty in Hong Kong? If they're inspired by American ideas of democracy, is that really challenging China's sovereignty? Keeping a guest on track. They say these are wounds of war. Congressman, with all due respect, I don't think that answers the question. And holding people accountable on the record. I don't know who these unnamed sources are you're referring to. I can tell you this. When These I talk, are not named sources. When I this talk is to my your senior here. advisor, Michael McKinley. You can go on the record as a public radio member by making a contribution to this station today. Here's how. Make your donation to Utah Public Radio on our website, upr.org. And thank you. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming. Please stay informed, but also know that whenever you want to find the perfect oasis, UPR2, our online classical music station, is available at upr.org. The critical financial backing we receive from our business community means we can bring you the news updates and online classical music programming. And that's a wonderful thing, especially in these uncertain times. But what is certain? UPR's commitment to serve our listeners here and online at upr.org and through our UPR app. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One beautiful September day, three men convene on Martha's Vineyard. Friends ever You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is a Pulitzer Prize winning author Richard Russo. The new novel is Chances Are. So Richard Russo... The Vietnam War, the draft, hovers over this this novel. Um, the, these three, of course, uh, were, were part of the draft, as every young man was. Um, and this gets into you, this theme of, of fate and how much do we control and how much is, is luck or fortune or, or God's will or whatever it might be. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. And I understand that you gave one of your characters your own draft number. Yeah, Teddy, the middle, uh, the middle of these three musketeers uh, gets the draft number uh, three twenty-two. That was mine, um, and uh, I remember vividly um, that. I mean, that's this is really the the kind of the inspiration for uh, for this book uh, was that one evening uh, back in nineteen sixty-nine, the first the first Vietnam uh, draft lottery. 
and I remember, uh, I don't think I could have given it words back then. I couldn't have articulated necessarily what I was feeling then, and, and it's difficult even to articulate even now. But, but I did have a profound sense that when we entered that room that night, as these, as these young men do, um, because I was a hasher, I was out west at the University of Arizona, so I wanted to change all of that. But, but I do remember that we, uh, all the hashers, many of us who were in that lottery, um, we asked the house mother if we could, if we could stay later that night and, and bring in a, bring in a TV. There were this, there was this small room in the back of the sorority house where those of us who, who served dinner and, and, and washed pots and all the stuff that you have to do in a kitchen, um, um, we asked if we could if we could stay late and keep the room open and watch the draft lottery on a on a on a tiny black and white TV uh, with rabbit ears that had to be constantly adjusted. Uh, and we were um, I remember that when when we went in when we went into the room there was a sense of um, uh, it was a jovial atmosphere, but more importantly a sense that we were all in the same boat. This was something that was happening. Not to uh, not to us as individuals, but to all of us. And being being nineteen or twenty, uh, as we were, um, we we were able to think in our own minds. We were part of our part of us knew that what was happening here was 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 serious. Not only serious, but perhaps deadly serious, lethally serious, depending on what our numbers. Uh, depending on the number we drew, um, uh, the trajectory of our lives. We're all about to change, but but also being nineteen or twenty, we thought, well, let's you know, since this is happening to us, we should bring beer, <laughs> you know, um, and I and we did. We brought we we brought um, we brought uh, six packs of beer and and loaded it up with ice. And as the and as the lottery uh, began with ping pong balls um, popping up uh, with 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 birth dates um, on them. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we popped our beers and, and made terrible, terrible jokes to each other. Uh, um, one of the, one of the guys, uh, I remember got the number nine and I gave that, I gave that number to, uh, to Mickey. Um, and we made terrible, we made terrible jokes, um, about, about what was happening, but somewhere along the line, probably, you know, 50 or 60 numbers in, the, the lethal seriousness of what was happening began to uh, began to take over, and um, you know uh, we began to we began to slip away. Those who had their numbers uh, began to slip away because they they wanted they needed um, to go home and and call their parents because they knew their parents were watching. Uh, this was I mean, <laughs> long before cell phones, uh, so they so they went on. We began to go home to our dorm rooms. Um, uh, uh, to call our parents. I remember I was there to the end because my number came so close to the end. But I remember vividly leaving, uh, leaving the, the, the Hasher room and walking across campus to the library where my girlfriend, then uh, and now wife of 47 years, um, was waiting for me to tell her, you know, my own, uh, my own draft number, my own personal destiny and by the time the evening was over what we all realized was that we were not all for one and one for all we were not 
yes, we were friends. Yes, we were great friends, and we understood the power of our friendships. But we didn't. But we weren't all in the same boat anymore. Some of us were in in very small, very leaky boats, and some of us uh, were in sturdier vessels. And some of us, like me, lucky on that day when I needed to be lucky, some of us were safely ashore. And that, for young men that age, that's that's a pretty powerful realization. It's the kind of thing you can know intellectually, but not emotionally. And one of the great things that's happening on this book tour, which I didn't anticipate, I might have, uh, but I didn't, is, um, is that on the road, uh, now at the end of, of my, you know, readings and Q&As, when people come up to sign, get their books signed, um, you know, uh, person after person wants to tell me what their draft number was and how it changed their lives. And not just guys, you know, um, women, um, want to tell me that, you know, about their brothers and their fiancés, their, their, their lovers, what, what, um, and, and, you know, how, how, how they waited to find out what, what their, uh, what the people they loved, um, what, what their, what, what their destiny was now going to be as a result, uh, of the, uh, of that draft lottery. One thing that really struck me, I was reading a, an interview with your publisher, you said your your number three twenty two, which which puts you in into safety, very very lucky number. Uh, that number has haunted you ever since. It has. Yeah, it 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 absolutely has. And um, I've allowed I've allowed some of that um, some of that haunting um, um, to creep into this book um, in in ways that um, were were difficult, but but that I'm very proud of actually um, because. Um, there's there's a scene in the book without giving too much away. Um, there's a scene in the book in which Mickey's old man um, um, is um, he and his son are in a diner and and Mickey is is trying to explain to him that that and his father's a World War II veteran, explaining to him the insanity of this war. Uh, and his father doesn't argue at all. He says, "Of course, <laughs> we all we all know this is we all know this is crazy." And we all know that nobody should go. But his father says, somebody's going to. And if not you, who? Um, and he, he challenges Mickey. He says, look, ar- look around this restaurant. Bunch of guys in here your age. Um, if you don't go, who do you think you should go? Show me the guy that you think should go. And, uh, you know, I, so, so yeah, I got lucky. I got incredibly lucky. I, 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 I drew, uh, I drew that, that, that draft number that, that put me in, that put me in safety. But I've always, and as I've gotten older, more and more, become more and more haunted by that, um, by that number. Um, and that's why this book is dedicated to those whose names are on the wall. Um, because, uh, you know, and I was in it kind of doubly like Mickey, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of had, there were, there were two wars that were, that were kind of being fought in my psyche at the time. Um, there was the Vietnam War that was, that was insane, that was based on, based on presidential lies, Nixon first and foremost, but he wasn't the first president to lie to the American people about what was going on over there. Um, and and so there was so there there was the Vietnam War that that was that was the issue. But for 
But for men like Mickey, whose father was a World War II uh, veteran, there's 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 the other war too that is still that is still part of the American imagination at that time because my my father was a Normandy guy. So uh, part of part of you know the, the haunting of my three twenty two number is, is I mean it's it's partly me but it's but it's also a son following in the footsteps of of a legitimate war hero. My father made it from from Normandy all the way to Berlin. Uh, and here I was, someone um, protesting a war that was, that came along, um, that, that came along when it was, when it was my turn. Mm. So yeah, I mean, and uh, I'm sorry, this is a very long answer to a, to, a, to a short question, but, you know, it's amazing how many men my age uh, have been similarly haunted when I was uh, my 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 daughter tried for almost a year to get me my wife and I tickets to um, uh, to Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show. I don't know if you've seen that or not, Tom. But, I haven't. No. But there, there's a there's a there's a wonderful. I mean, the music is everything you would expect from the boss. It's it's just it's just glorious. But it's the storytelling that excuse me. The, it's the storytelling that really wrecks you. And he and he tells this this. This wonderful story about him and his friends going to the draft board, trying to convince them that they were that they were all crazy, <laughs> you know, so that they wouldn't, so that so that the draft board wouldn't wouldn't think that they were army material, which of course had exactly no effect <laughs> on uh, on them. And and you know, some of them were drafted, um, and some like uh, like Bruce were not, um, and uh, and and some of them and some of them came home safely, and some of them died. And Springsteen says. Uh, I don't know who died in my place, but somebody did. So that's that kind of that kind of haunting. I think is is the is the partic- is the particular legacy of of, uh, of my generation. Mm. And um, and this this book kind of snuck up on me in the, in the sense that is that I hadn't. This is not a book that I've been thinking about writing for a very long time or anything like that. But suddenly there it was, all of it, uh, all of it at once. So very much related, and, and uh, thank you for for that. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's I think that helps me understand a, a lot. Uh, a related, very much related question. You mentioned earlier uh, there's a strong theme of fate. You know, chances are um, yep. the title in this book. Um, so the question is: Do you do you believe in destiny? Do we have a destiny? What? How, how much do we control? And how much is fate? Yeah. Well, actually, the last three of my books uh, have all been about the same subject. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating in a way. I've been mulling this over for a very long time, even before this, even before this novel came along. Um, my last book of long short stories was called Trajectory, and as the title suggests, that had something to do with, with fate and destiny, too. It's, all four of those stories about, are about people who wake up in their 50s kind of scratching their heads and wondering, is this the life that I was supposed to to lead? How did I, how did I come here? This wasn't what I planned. Something else has happened in the in the meantime. And then my book of essays was called The Destiny Thief, um, where I where I where I mulled over in kind of nonfiction form some of these things that that puzzled me. And now chances are, um, you know, my own sense is um, that. If somebody, you know, if somebody gave me a hundred lives, and this was just one of them, and then erased the memory of that life, and I got to do it all over again, my sense is that, that, I, would, that I would probably have another 99 different, very, very different outcomes. 
and probably maybe there might be only one or two in which I was even a, a writer or an artist of, of, of any of, of any sort. I just I just don't have any sense that 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 this life that I live that that I've been fortunate enough to live is the only one out there. I think that there are um, that there are um, other um, that there were other possible lives um, um, out there out there for me. And sometimes I even have a kind of shadow glimpse of of what some of those others might have turned out and they and most of them aren't aren't nearly as blessed as the one that I that I actually uh, that I actually have lived and it and I've thought a lot about the fact that you know it, it, especially when you talk to people who have been blessed in one way or another people who have been successful or blessed uh and you ask them to tell the story of their lives the story that they tell is very often based on on free will that is those decisions that we make in life as opposed to chance which is just pure serendipity and fate which also you know like genetics you don't have any control over that and when successful people tell the story of their lives basically what they do is ignore fate and they ignore chance and they talk about free will i did this I made this decision, this happened, and then I did this, and this happened, and lo and behold, here I am, a self-made man. You know, that's the story, that's the story that they like to tell. And I don't know whether or not that they're aware that it's a lie, but I do know that an awful lot of people born on third base seem to believe that they've hit triples, <laughs> you know? And... Um, and an awful lot of people, um, um, strangely enough, who were dealt really, really terrible hands uh, with with very few avenues towards success, strangely enough, blame themselves. You know, they've been dealt this almost unwinnable hand, um, and and yet they're decent people, and they blame themselves, and they say, you know, I should have done this differently, or I should have done that differently and so we have destinies but we also have stories we have we tell ourselves stories about about the meaning the about the meaning of our lives and we blame ourselves we blame others we all we all know the stories we all know the stories of of um, uh, of, of the guy who's in jail and you say why is he why are you in jail and he, and and he says well and, and 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 the guy in jail says well the cop never should have come into the convenience store when he did or i wouldn't have had to shoot him <laughs> you know we, we tell these we tell these twisted stories of our lives you know um you know the story well known now oh i got a i got a small million dollar loan from my father you know <laughs> and now look and now look at now look at all the many many millions even billions i turned that into we tell these <laughs> We tell these, uh, you know, we tell these outright lies. Uh, I think about um, about our lives, and and tragically, I think many times we believe them. Hmm. I was going to ask you. You've already answered it, but uh, I had wondered, and I've observed that uh, the stories we tell ourselves uh, about uh, fate um, kind of do break down along class lines. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of things break down along class lines. Um, which is why I continue to uh, I continue to mull about it, write about it. Um, it's, you know, it's funny. One of the one of the writing one of the one of the maxims of writing, of course, is write what you know. And 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 there's a lot of truth to that. And I 
I, I write a lot about what I know, but clearly I don't know enough, because, or I wouldn't be mulling over the same things I was mulling over, you know, 30, 35 years ago when I broke into writing as a, as a, as a, as a young man. Um, here I am, you know, I was, what was I, in my early 30s, um, when Mohawk, or maybe middle 30s, well, by the time Mohawk was published. Um, so here I am, 35 years later, think about it, you know, 35 years later, I'm basically mulling over the same things that, that interested me um, when I was a younger, when I was a, a much younger man, in much the same way that we find an author like, like Dickens, you know, you ask, you know, you read all of those Dickens novels, and and if Dickens were alive, and 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 we could ask him, one of the questions we might ask is, "What's with all the orphans?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, why why at the end of your life, um, so many books passed Oliver Twist? Why does it seem almost impossible for Dickens to write um, to write a book that did not involve a major character who's an orphan? Uh, and uh, and you think, well, at some point, um, he must have felt like one. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, of course, you never you never resolve, you never you never figure it out. Um, and and that's the good news, really. I mean, it's it's not a narrowness. It's not a it's not it's not that you're wearing as an author, you have blinders on and you can't think of anything else to write about. It's 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 that Dickens and 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 Faulkner and and uh, and uh, Willa Cather and and um, Charlotte Bronte, they they uh, uh, you know were were all haunted by 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 certain obsessions, and we keep we keep returning to those um, whether we want to or not. It seems like it sometimes. Does that does that do you think include all of us? We we have issues that we're dealing with from our youth, or is that just writers? Do you think? Well, certainly writers, um, um, but I think, uh, but I think, I think all of us, um, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think, I mean, part of it is just that, that when we are kids and, and, and teenagers, the world is new, and, and, and when it's new, we learn it in a slightly different way. I mean, those, those early, those early things that are imprinted upon the child's brain or the adolescent's brain, because it's so new, it gets imprinted really, really deep. And I think that what happens um, later in life, there's a, there, let's face it, there's a lot of repetition later in life. And so what happens when it happens to you, you think to yourself, well, I've, I've, certainly, I've certainly dealt with this before. I saw this coming. It's only happened 20,000 times to me. And so the world the world begins to feel not quite so new and and what we and what we learn kind of reinforces um, what we what we already know conclusions that we have already come to but that stuff that happens early that's a different kind of learning a different kind of knowledge we're not just tweaking anymore you know past the age of 20 or 25 we're we're dealing with software Earlier than that, we're talking about hardware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the right. hardware of our lives. Right. Um, and and that's what we keep returning to. I think whether we're writers or artists or politicians or or whatever, we're we're kind of in certain respects. Um, the you know the early years of our lives, that's our hardwiring. Oh, uh, we just have five or ten minutes left here. I definitely want to 
You made an oblique reference to the president. Um, and you've you've had this question, I'm sure, before. Uh, some of the characters in your novels are, you know, small town. Uh, you deal with, deal with class issues. Uh, some of the characters in your novels uh, fit the profile of Trump supporters. I wonder. Uh, yeah, they sure do. You uh, they sure do understand what uh, their angst is and why they voted for the president. I do, I do, um, and. Um, you know, I've talked about this before on NPR. Uh, I, I talked about the election. I was, I was invited to talk on National Public Radio uh, the morning after the election, and I agreed to do so when I thought I knew who was going to, want, uh, who was going to win and, and found that I had to go on and talk and in some ways um, speak to uh, uh, at least NPR's part of the nation about, about what had happened. And... Um, and um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't speak for 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 uh, Trump voters. I wouldn't say, "Oh, I know why you did that." But I think I do have at least um, minimal insight um, because um, because of where I grew up, um, how I grew up. Um, a lot of my formative years were were um, were. Uh, when I was working road construction with my father and and all of his friends, um, and so I know what it's I know what it's work like to work I, I I know what it's like to work with a pen in my hand, but I also know what it's like to work with a shovel, and I know what it's like to do the kind of hard work that my father and his friends did, and to not expect much money, and certainly never to be overpaid for anything, and to have money worries. Um, all the time, um, and to worry about losing your job. And I think that election, um, that election, what we said about it was that that it was about jobs, but it was also about work, um, which I take to be the more important issue here, um, is that a lot of angry white men were 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 concerned about losing their jobs, but they were more concerned about losing their work because it was their work that made them feel like they were part of the fabric of American society, that they were worth something. And I certainly saw that in the hometown that I grew up in, where most of that work went away long before it did in the rest of the United States. And I saw what happened to both men and women in tanneries and glove shops, um, who, if you had asked them in 1955, who they were as Americans, they would have been able to tell you that they made gloves in a city that produced most of the, like 90% of the dress, the dress gloves worn by people throughout the United States. They would have told you that. They would have told you not about their economics. They would have told you about their work. They would have said, here's, here's what I do as an American. Here's, what I, here's, here's how I connect to the fabric of American society. And, and when all the glove shops closed and tanneries closed down, they not only lost their jobs, they not only lost their income, they lost their sense of who they were as Americans and that they were valuable as Americans. Um, so, yeah, I know, I think I know at least something of what was going on uh, among Trump supporters. And the, only, and the objection that I have um, to their anger um, is that what they were feeling was legitimate. Um, their loss of work, their loss of their sense of identity was legitimate. What they don't seem to, what, what they don't seem to grasp, and I wish they would, is that what they were feeling 
was not new. It was just not new to them. Black-skinned people and brown-skinned people have been feeling this. <laughs> How far back do we need to go, you know, um, uh, to... There, there, there are large groups of people have, who have always felt uh, marginalized in America, uh, who have never been sure um, of, of, what their, of what their purpose was, whose, whose livelihoods, not only their economic livelihoods, but their, but their, but their, um, their, their sense of themselves as valued Americans. Um, and they say, if, if someone asks, what do you... What, what is your contribution to America? How do you feel about yourself as an American? There are an awful lot of people out there for a very long time um, who, um, who, who could not have answered that question with optimism. Uh, so I guess that's what I would, that's what I would say. Is, is, and, and, those, and those people want to build walls. You know, they want America to go back uh, to a time when, um, when it wasn't pluralistic, when it, and when... when um, white people could be assured of their that their whiteness was 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 um, was some sort of trump card. Well, okay, maybe <laughs> bad choice of words there, uh, but um, um, so yeah, I think I think I do know something about um, uh, about these folks, and I sympathize um, un- until uh, un- until I don't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, uh, we're we're coming down uh, near the end of our time. Just one more uh, subject. This uh, earlier in the, our conversation, you said this, among other things, was a novel about uh, secrets and lies. I just want to quote a couple things that you uh, said in this interview. I've been referencing that really struck me. You said, "If you don't have secrets, you don't have an inner life." That's um, right. And then connecting that with old friends, and the three the three uh, protagonists in the novel are, are very old friends. Uh, you say most people become more skilled at dissembling over time, and our oldest friends knew us before we got good at it. Yeah, yeah, and that's why some of those—that's why some of those friendships are so powerful. And you know, I've always been an optimistic, an optimistic man, and an optimistic writer. Uh, and my optimism has been sorely, sorely challenged over the last decade. Uh, and my work has gotten progressively darker because of what I've seen. Uh, and what and what we've all seen, and what we've all witnessed, what we've all um, um, lived through. But the optimism of this book, I think, lies in the friendship of these three uh, men, whose friendship is sorely tested um, in this book. Um, they have not shared the secrets of their inner lives, as we sometimes simply cannot. Um, and and because of their love for this girl and for various other reasons, they have not always been completely truthful. But there has never been a point in their lives where these guys haven't had profound affection and, yes, love for each other. And the optimism of this book is, I think, if they're in such as, in such as it is, is that if secrets and lies have the power to utterly destroy our lives, friendship and affection of the sort that these men display for each other is a powerful force that um, you would you do you do well not to not to underestimate because it's it's pretty powerful well that's a good place to end uh, end the discussion and uh, added to everything we've been talking about it's a page turning mystery as well so uh, the book is uh, chances are it's the new novel from Richard Russo uh, who is winner of the uh, Pulitzer uh, Prize, uh, author of Empire Falls and uh, Nobody's Fool and many other books. Richard Russo, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Tom. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. And you're listening to Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us this morning. Don't forget to tune in for Behind the Headlines tomorrow morning from 9 to 10 o'clock. That's a recap of this week in Utah news. Thanks for listening today. Hi, I'm Carrie Bringhurst along with Tom Williams. We're station managers at Utah Public Radio. We're all doing things differently right now. That's right. And Utah Public Radio is no different. This week would have been UPR's membership fundraiser, where volunteers gather to take your fund contributions. But social distancing keeps us from connecting with you in that way. and Because we don't want to interrupt important coverage of COVID-19 and other stories, we're asking you to make a contribution online at upr.org. We need to raise $55,000 this spring to maintain our regular programming and to cover the added costs of coverage during this critical time. So as a nonprofit public radio service, we're depending on members like you to do your part to support local public radio, Utah Public Radio. That's right. You can donate online at upr.org or through our free UPR app. With your support, we can continue to come together to serve you and your family. You can donate right now at upr.org. And thank you in advance for your support. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org.